You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Good evening, Rifters. This is Rifts and Rules, the 5e D&D podcast, where we go through the many 5e books and talk about various rules and haunt your gameplay experience. I'm Nathan, the Dungeon Master of Riftwake. And I'm Remy, a player on Riftwick and a Dungeon Master myself. And today we're here to talk to you about guilds. Nathan, what is a guild? It's like, um, it's like a guild. Uh, wait. So a guild is a place where a bunch of people are like, I, I don't know, is it like a union or something? I'm not sure. <laughs> I mean, pretty much, yeah. Like, that's part of the fun I don't of actually it, is know. It is... It... <laughs> well, I mean, there's a few it's different like, it's ways... It's not something I ever had to define. define. <laughs> and that's part of what's useful. <laughs> I mean, technically speaking, like, the most basic definition would just be just a group of people with similar, you know, interests or similar uh, just organization. Like, the classical definition is more like you know craftsmen or merchants that are organized together into a guild to help you know give advantages to those in the guild against those out of it so you your comparison to a union is actually pretty accurate but in terms of dungeons and dragons it is really interesting because it is arguably one of the most covered just topics in D&D books, like, there are entire books that kind of do just focus on it. Like, there's the Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica, which, again, it is somewhat in the associated books more than just the, you know, normal standard content. But yeah, Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica, Acquisitions Incorporated, both of those two books are almost entirely about freaking guilds. And even besides that, there's a lot of talk about it in uh, Eberron, Rising from the Last War. There's talk about it just as the background, guild artisan or guild merchant. There are magic items that are specific to guilds, backgrounds like I mentioned. There is a fuck ton of stuff just about that. I mean, hell, Waterdeep. Like, a lot of people, you know, know the book, Xanathar's Guide to Everything, but a lot of people who haven't read all of the books don't know that, like, Xanathar is a beholder in the city of Waterdeep that runs a guild, the Xanathar Guild. So it is a massive topic throughout Dungeons & Dragons. And to be blunt, there is no fucking way that we could cover everything that is involved with guilds in 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons because there is just too much out there. 
So our intention for this is to just give more of an overview on the topic and to give some, you know, advice, tips and such on implementing guilds in your own world, because it is such a big topic for good reason, because it can be a massively helpful tool for dungeon masters, honestly, just in just the game itself and in your world building. It's a good thing. So uh, let me backtrack just a moment, though. So we talked about how it is an organization of people. But in D&D, exactly what is organized into a guild is a very vague topic. So it could be whatever you as a dungeon master want to be. You can have there be the typical merchant guilds, where you can have just like the smiths in a city just are organized into a guild. And then they might be the ones who make, you know, armor or even magic items might be under a guild control. You can have like the Adventurers Guild, which honestly could be its own topic as an episode. Like there are potential assassin guilds, thieves guilds. I mean, you could even just have guilds organized by D&D race. Like maybe there is, you know, a big city that just has like a huge blend of people. So maybe there is, you know, just like a, you know, human centric guild or an elf guild where they can have like their own kind of areas or portions of control within like a town or city. There is. I use this phrase a lot. I know I, we should just get a T-shirt. Just infinite number of things that you can do with the subject. So what are some of the more common types of guilds that you yourself have seen used? So in regards to guilds, right, the most common uh, thing that I see is the mainly the Avengers Guild, generally speaking, but otherwise it'd be a merchant's guild of sorts. Yeah, and to be honest, that's probably where we should devote the most focus but just for our own conversation for this episode because yes it is an important part of the big picture world building to consider what other things do organize into a guild but again just for the sake of sanity and time we probably should focus more on the adventurer side of things because more often than not if you're playing a DD game that's probably what you're focused on so that being said how are various things, various ways that a adventurer's guild can exist? Well, traditionally speaking, isn't it mostly a case where you, you find adventurer's guild more or less just quest givers rather than actual guilds per se? Like, if you were to take it to the proper level of uh, detail, it probably be more like a case where oh okay um you we take a certain cut of the earnings and so on and so forth and that kind of bullshit but you don't really get to see that what what most of the time you see is more like a it's just presented as oh they give quests and that's it yeah that is one way that it can be done like what is particularly helpful potentially for the existence of an adventurer's guild campaign is the fact that it gives your players a direction. So it is a unfortunately common problem among sandbox DMs like myself that 
because of the fact that it is such an open world that players, and especially newer players, have no fucking idea what to do or where to go. And a guild is, uh, I don't want to use the word compromise, but that's the closest that comes to mind right now. But it's, it is a good way to give a semblance of direction while still having the open world. Because even though they might be, you know, let's say it is just a party of adventurers in a singular guild, although we'll talk a little bit more later that you don't have to focus it that way. But for the sake of argument, players all together in a guild and how you choose to organize the guild itself, even just that little detail can be variable. Like maybe they do just have, you know, a patron who is the one who just says, you know, go do this thing specifically. And they just are given a quest. They do the quest. You know, the guild, you can even just have take their cut in advance. So whatever the players get paid, they just get paid. So that way there's less bookkeeping for you as the DM. There's less, you know, uh, choice fatigue that could be a problem from the player side. And that's a fun thing to do. Like, I've played in games where guilds are featured prominently in that direction, and it's a fuck ton of fun. However, there are other ways that that can go. So in, instead of just having the singular quest, you can have more of the bounty board style. And I'll admit, this is where my own personal leanings lean. Anyway, so if you do have the kind of bounty boards scenario, that's where, okay, you can have multiple options available and then there could just be things that need to get done in the local area and what's nice about that there is a very common problem as we've talked about quite a number of times in the past where players will assume that okay if i see a thing then i can fight it i can kill it and that is a common dangerous assumption however a bounty board gives you as the dungeon master the opportunity to introduce the facts that there are things out there that the players cannot deal with yet. So you can choose to actually have this be, you know, levels are a quantifiable thing in such a game. That can actually work in this because it could be measured, okay, you know, like don't, you know, don't take this quest unless, you know, the magic users in your party are powerful enough to cast Fireball. Like, there can be, like, in-game parallels to levels to yeah. just have there be the tiers of adventurer. So what, what I'm actually thinking, um, like, off of this, is that it, it could be pretty nice to have, like, a sort of progression system where... You could have the thing where, okay, you finish this amount of quests, and then it's like, oh, you finish this quest, so you, you, you are now a, a copper level um, adventurer. And it's that kind of thing where, you know how... That, 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 <laughs> this is exactly the, the way I was going to go with it, too. Yeah, and, and the thing is that, you know how, how they have this sort of like, okay, during the, for certain sets of levels are actually, oh, you deal with these kinds of issues, right? And then you just tie a kind of metal or something yeah. to each of those. Because yeah. it is a canonical description in the books that there are four tiers of adventure. There's, you know, just the early... I don't even remember the descriptions. I should have had that tab up. But there's four tiers of adventurers. That's like the early levels. Then you got like the, I think, 5 to 10, 11 to 16. And then finally the 17 through 20. So 
you can have those tiers described in game. So you can have it be, okay, you know, starting low-level adventures can be like copper adventures. Then you can go like copper, silver, gold, platinum for those four tiers of play. And in game, you know, you may or may not want, you know, the levels to be quantified. But the thing is, the tiers of play are absolutely something that in world you can see the difference in. Because once you go from copper to silver, that is the level, level five, where, okay, magic users might be able to cast fireball or call lightning, you know, those powerful classic spells. That is the level at which fighters first gain uh, and barbarians get extra attack. So it is a quantifiable thing that people in world can see. So using the tiers of play to describe the dangers of potential quests works mechanically in game, which is, is just such a helpful tool for organizing such a thing. And that gives you as the dungeon master, like I was saying earlier, the chance to illustrate, oh, there are things on here that you should not do yet. Because if you have like an established guild, and that's another thing that we'll talk more about in a moment. But if you have a guild that has, okay, you know, you are copper adventurers at you know the start of the campaign, and then you can see, oh, there are gold quests on this board, and you can just see, oh shit, you know that is a oh, massive that's fucking payout. cool, <laughs> and you can say, and you can have it be this type of thing, like you know maybe a gold quest is like, yeah, you know there is a you know dragon troubling that this you know town a couple of towns over, but it's the kind of thing where your adventurers would be able to know ah, yes, this is quite literally out of our tier of ability. And you have that quantifiably in-game. It is very explicitly spelled out, either just by the description or even by their patron, potentially, if you do use the patron idea, that there are things here. And also to show the potential rewards for future quests. To know, okay, so there are, you know, this level of rewards, now there's this level of rewards then, and you can actually see, oh, okay, there actually can be like a magic item at, like being offered by whoever posted up a certain bounty. There could be, you know, thousands of gold for like the really just high difficult quests. And you could even have it be a thing where maybe like maybe the way to advance up, like if you have, you know, bronze adventure excuse me, if you have bronze adventurers, like maybe then like with approval, you can take a silver quest and that you might need to get like three silver quests under your belt to like get the official upgrade. And you could have different tiers of adventure have different rewards in the guild and options and tools. Not not even talking about the, the actual mechanical aspect. Imagine you like having that sort of thing where oh you can actually make it a ceremony where a ceremony when you um reach the next level of adventure or maybe there's somebody at the guild that doesn't like your adventuring group too much maybe you have a Gorf like character that fucked up someone early on and they don't like you a lot and um yeah you can have all these different like story things that can just lie in wait uh that the that that can just add to that sort of a progression to the characters that would not be there. Exactly. So that actually will take us to one of the other massive advantages 
of using a guild, which is people. We have talked at length about the benefits of the action economy in D&D. And this is something that can be beneficial for many, many styles of game. So having access to a guild means that you have allies available. But just like you were saying a moment ago, Nathan, it also means that you might have potential rivalries. So whether that is some individual in the guild who you might not get along with, there could be rival teams. Like maybe there are only so many quests available and maybe there are like three or four bronze teams in the guild that are all competing for a finite number of jobs. And that also gives you as a dungeon master more options because there might be times then where the other teams just take all the quests. And that gives you as the dungeon master a ready-made excuse to take advantage of downtime. Because that is one kind of odd thing that a lot of us, and I myself am guilty of this, do a lot, which is to not give enough downtime to allow the players to just have that chance to relax or to just do other things for the sake of their character. So creating this, you know, finite system of jobs could be a way to like give, you know, someone in the party with Smith's tools might get a chance to make some new gear to have some time to do that. Uh, maybe there's someone who just, you know, wants to go gambling or visit a brothel, you know, just whatever it is that characters want to do with downtime, like is something that really should be done more often. And a lot of us just kind of don't really. Yeah, downtime's hard. <laughs> yeah, like it's, it's really kind of an odd thing in D&D 5e particularly, just that it is constantly on the move. And one of the criticisms of 5th edition is the fact that like there is like official math of how long it should take to to, you know, adventure and level up and such. And there's supposed to be by rules as written you know, so many encounters in a day at certain levels with such and such challenge rating enemies. And it ends up being that like the entire leveling from like level one all the way to fucking level 20 could be less than a year in game time, which is insane. But anyway, that's a tangent and another discussion for another day. Uh, back to guilds, though. So uh, where was I? Oh, yeah, people. So there is this whole rivalry thing that can be done. However, that was what we were talking about within a guild. If you have guilds be something prominent in either the world or just in, you know, the particular city that you're in, then that gives the opportunity for other guilds to exist. So this is something that actually was done very well by Jason on Dungeons and Randomness. Uh, it's not quite considered to be guild but in their city of brightport they have three houses that all take jobs and have a lot of responsibility but what's nice about it is that they each have their own distinct styles so they have one house who you know back in the day took care of all of like the dark magic alchemy you know all that kind of you know types of magic then they've got one that deals more with like the assassin subterfuge side of things. And one that was just the, you know, yeah, you know, we guard people and hit shit. And that is like 
honestly, a really efficient use of just the classical styles of guilds to have, for all intents and purposes, a magic guild, a thieves guild, and like a protection guild. And like, it is a good demonstration that, okay, even though you do have these different guilds with different styles, there can be different guild, different like competition for the same job. And you can have, you know, one guild that is hired to protect someone and one guild that is hired to kill them. And then it's an, an amazing way to establish lots guild of wars. connections between NPCs. And yeah, if you want to go like the more, you know, just heavy angle into that, you can absolutely arrange for a full on guild war because, well, actually, uh, to backtrack just a moment before I get fully into that topic again how big a guild is is absolutely variable you can have it be where the party themselves are like the ones starting up just a new guild and that they are just like maybe guild is like an official legal thing in your world where that's something that like offers legal protection like how it might be similar to like a private eye license or some such thing where like you have an official recognition to like dig your nose into certain things or to like go into like the sewers or certain places that like non-registered people aren't allowed to go. So a guild, while at its most basic, is just a grouping of people. You that's, can choose to have it be a legal organization. That's that's amazing, I'd say. Um I was thinking, I was just thinking, <laughs> murder hobo. LLC. We kill people. Come to us if you need killing done. <laughs> I think there might be a copy dispute with that one. I'm fairly sure that that would be a very old established powerful build in any setting that has skills. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Uh, actually, you know what? I, I might just steal that from you, David, because that's a funny <laughs> idea. Because in my own world like guilds are a thing and you're right like there are many people in world that have referred to adventurers as murder hobos like that is like a term that has been thrown around so to have there be a guild that just leans into it like yeah that's what we fucking do what you gonna do about it bitches like that <laughs> works on a lot of levels <laughs> and again like this kind of illustrates the point that I really just want to make overall in this, which is that guilds can be so many different things. So uh, anyway, uh, I am getting distracted and tangenting a lot uh, talking about size of guilds. So it could just be where your player characters might be establishing a guild for themselves to get potential legal protections. Or maybe it could even be a thing where like if you are a you know registered guild that has you know, X number of, you know, silver or gold quests under their belt that maybe like the city itself offers benefits. Like maybe there are like maybe the artisans, the artisans guild is one that is actually affiliated with the city itself. And they're considered to be like the neutral party. So it could be all of these other adventurer guilds that do just have to, you know, pass certain thresholds to be able to make use of the artisans guild resources and that could be like the source of magic weapons so I, I was thinking more of like a sort of a case where you maybe like there's a lot of expenses that are required to run a guild if i'm not wrong so 
it could be a case where you might get subsidies or from yeah. the city or something like that. Absolutely. Because generally speaking, something that isn't really talked about a lot in D&D in general is the fact that classically speaking, like a kingdom existed and then there were a lot of towns and such that owed fealty to the main city. And oddly, that doesn't actually come up a lot in D&D, but this actually can grant another opportunity in a game like this, where it could be something like, okay, you know, you are established in this city. And so there are like these, I don't know, 12 villages, towns of various sizes and organizations that are, you know, under their umbrella that owe fealty. So it could be then that there's a huge amount of setting for yourself and your players to play around in, even if you might be in a relatively small geographical area. So this is yet another thing that you know, I myself actually fail at a lot of the time, which is that I am an outside NDM. So I think about the world scale, the big picture, but you can very easily have multiple campaigns on just a tiny, tiny geographic area. Like hell, you could have one city be the entire campaign. You don't have to travel to play Dungeons and Dragons. You can just have a single place. So one one I I, I th- actually think about that is that when you actually really look into it, it's more like a fractal than anything. So no matter what size you go with, there's always going to be certain organizations, so on and so forth. And Basically, when you go down to the city level, you have these businesses, these guilds. If you get larger, you have these kingdoms, you have these uh, powerful groups of note on the continent. You get bigger, there's these countries and such. And yeah, it doesn't matter what level you are at. Does like You could even be just a, this block of people like... like but it's like, oh, um, Johnny down the road's an asshole. He, he's been stealing the chickens, you know, that kind of thing. And it doesn't matter how lower high you go there's always going to be different groups and you know interest groups of such yeah yeah and again like acquisitions incorporated is its own show that has been written into a setting book like in partnership with wizards of the coast uh if you are interested in guilds i actually do highly recommend uh getting the acquisitions incorporated book because it is massively helpful just talking about a lot of high magic guild options so what's also cool about it just from like the outside in angle of things so part of the whole idea of acquisitions incorporated is that the players are all part of this guild however it is a guild that has franchises So you have one overarching guild that has like a lot of, you know, rules and bylaws and just stuff available, but you might just be part of a larger or smaller franchise. And that is a really freaking cool thing. Uh, One other kind of cool thing, though. So in a guild, there are a lot of more opportunities like we talked about for meeting people. However, there can also be mechanical benefits. And obviously, you all know me by now, I do love me some mechanical benefits to things. So generally speaking, there are kind of clumsy rules when it comes to magic items 
in fifth edition, unfortunately, even after, you know, the years it's been out, it's still not the best. So having there be guild artisans, whether that is like a separate guild or whether that is just an individual within the guild is just a massive potential benefit, especially if you do consider like a high level artificer, a uh, little known just detail about the actual official artificer class is that they do get a class feature at level 10, I want to say, that actually makes it cheaper and faster for them to make magic items. So if you do have a guild artisan available to you, then there actually is an official in-game person who is able to manufacture magic items, not just you know someone who can just do that, but someone who can do it faster and cheaper. So it makes sense then in like a medium to high magic world that has artificers to have one of them would be a major coup for a guild. And actually something else that I hadn't thought about until I said that just now, if you have a player character who is an artificer, then that would make them a hugely valuable resource in a setting. So that's actually something I also don't see as often as I would like, which is just how valuable are the abilities of player characters? So we were talking about downtime, and that is another thing that a guild can be very valuable for, because that can give additional downtime opportunities. So maybe the cleric is able to make a little extra coin, you know, healing some people on the slide, no questions asked. You know, maybe there can be opportunities for the artificer to just you know, make stuff for people. Maybe there's even a druid in the party who might, you know, be able to just, you know, make good berries on, you know, on mass to have that just as an available for people, you know, about to go through the desert or just through environments where food may not be as readily available. So there are just no limit to the number, just the angles that can be done, the scale that can be done. It is such a variable topic, which is just the best kind in my view. So even besides all of that, then you can get into the potential magic items that exist. So in Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica, there actually is an uncommon magic item that is the Guild Signet, which is just a signet ring that is an uncommon magic item that you can attune to. And what's really cool about it is that this is a magic item that has three charges, regains 1d3 daily at dawn, that lets you cast a spell. So there are, I want to say like 10 official guilds talked about in the Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica. And again, that is a yet another book that I do highly recommend if you do want more information on this topic, because they have at length descriptions about 10 guilds in that book, as well as just magic associated with them, just the style, the organization. So even if you are the type of DM who'd rather, you know, not just come up with just massive lists of organizations and such, you can use this as a resource for your own creation. But anyway, uh, the magic item itself, though, there are 10 guilds there, and each of them has one spell that is able to be cast from their guild signet. Now, What's nice is that the spells listed are, you know, pretty useful for most of them. Hellish Rebuke, Charm Person, Disguise Self, just lots of good spells. However, 
another thing that can be done, though. Just because those specific spells are listed as options for that item, you as a dungeon master can always change things to be whatever you want it to be. And in particular for this, any first level spell, in theory, could get made in such an item. Because one of the other spells is Compelled Duel, which is normally a paladin-only spell. So what I take that to mean, any magic item can potentially have any spell. And that is just a good example of that explicitly. Which means that, that it could be possible to have this magic item that might have three uses of cure wounds, or three uses of goodberry, or three uses of any first level good spell. Because there are lots of times in D&D where there just is not just the full party layout. There, there might be times where you just don't have a healer just because of the way the party layout happens to end up. And to have some option for emergency healing or emergency food rations or emergency what have you can be a massively, massively valuable thing. So I do highly recommend just using the existence of a guild signet because that just is a fantastically useful magic item. All right. In summary, guilds are awesome and it is something that has so much flexibility from something as small as just the members of the party to a franchise you know, continental, world-level, extra-dimensional-level organization from all tiers of adventuring. It is a topic that gives so many opportunities for play, for organization, for world-building, that I highly suggest that Dungeon Masters put more thought into using them to expand their worlds. Thanks for listening to this episode of Riffs and Rules. Please leave us a review and give us five stars on iTunes. Also, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. Tier stars as low as a dollar, and even that much really helps us out. Support us to get benefits such as behind-the-scenes content, early access to episodes, access to the Patreon Discord, we will be able to chat with the cast, and even a shout-out on the show. Find us on social media on Twitter at Riffwake Podcast, on Facebook as Riffwake, on Reddit on the subreddit r slash Podcast, and you can send us an email, riffsandrules at gmail.com. That's riffsandrules at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Bye! When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.